Somebody rewind and we'll start again. Good morning, church. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open up to the gospel of, excuse me, the book of Galatians. Wow. All right. We're going to continue to go verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And this is God's word. And all of his people should hear it and receive it as such. Galatians 3, 14 and following. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Please pray with me. Our wonderful God in heaven, we come to you this morning bringing our concerns and desires. We come asking for your presence and power. Father, we ask that you would meet with us, that you would teach us your word, that your voice would be distinguished from all other noises, that we might hear what you have to say. God, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes that we might see, ears to hear, hearts renewed to receive all that you have for us. Would you equip the saints, encourage the faint-hearted, and reveal yourself to us that we might love you, adore you, and respond to you as you desire. So come and meet with us. Show us Jesus, that we might love him and adore him all the more as we wait for his return. It is in his name that we ask this, and all God's people agree. Amen. I know at times... We go so slow through letters or stories that sometimes it's easy to lose the thread that we are focused on. It is easy to spend so much time looking at the individual botany that we miss the forest. We spend so much time going small that sometimes we zoom in to the degree to which we can lose track of what we are studying. So let me remind us of a few things. First, the gospel of grace and freedom is the theme of this letter. There are some men who are coming, Paul tells us, to spy on the freedom that we have in the gospel by faith in Jesus Christ. And so let us remember that gospel afresh this morning, that the gospel is Jesus Christ coming to undo what we have done. The gospel is the truth that God made all things, that we broke what God made, and that Jesus comes and repairs and restores all things, and that one day all things 
all things will be made new. When we remember this gospel, we recognize that it's not about us. The gospel is not about us. It is about Christ and we in him. So the gospel is not about, contrary to what these spies were saying, it's not about what you do for God. The one true gospel is about what God in Christ has done for us. So when we think about the progression of this chapter, it is essential to remember that we are attacking Phariseeism, legalism, not that we object to discussing our legal standing in the court of heaven, rather that's pretty on topic, I would say. But part of what Paul is doing is fighting back against the doctrinal falsehood that our performance is what makes us righteous or favored in God's eyes. Instead, it is about the promise of Christ given and the fulfillment of that promise in Christ's coming. So, we remember again where we left off last week that we are to trust in Jesus' obedient life, his atoning death, and the vindication of his resurrection. And that that is the only way to have right standing in the throne room of heaven. Trusting in Jesus. Who he is, what he's done, this is the hope of heaven. This is the consolation of Israel. So when we read here in verse 14 that it is in Christ Jesus that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, we see Paul heading back into one of the most central doctrinal truths in all of Scripture. That salvation is based on our union with the Savior. In other words, it is the doctrine of our union with Christ that Paul is spreading out before us that we might understand it. But let's be very clear. When we study this doctrine of our union with Christ, we're not looking at something that came later. We're looking at the thing itself. From start to finish, your Bible begins with the promise of Christ and will end in the praise of Christ. And everything between that is about Christ. It's about the promise. So when we say, pay attention to the blessing of Abraham, part of what we're saying is, pay attention to the promise of Jesus Christ that Abraham trusts in, which makes him the test case for faith, salvific faith, in the New Testament. There are going to be some elements in the sermon today that are boring. I'm just telling you that up front. There are lesser and greater glories in Scripture that we can see as glamorous. But one of the great joys of maturing in faith is that things that were boring become glamorous. So if it's not glamorous today, don't lose heart. Glamour is coming. It just doesn't come from me. So, here we go in 14. 
in Christ, and that's the language of union that Paul uses consistently. In Christ, meaning union with Christ. Jesus is the Christ. So sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you will see Jesus come before Christ, and other times you will see Christ before Jesus. There are times when, due to the context, you are focused on who is Jesus. He's the Christ. And then other times you're focused on the coming of Christ, who is Jesus. So if you're talking about the work of Christ, it makes sense to lead with this promised Christ, who's Jesus. But other times you, read, you lead with Jesus, who is the Christ, the life of Jesus, the person of Jesus, who holds the title and office of Christ. So here, Paul's talking about our union with the promised Messiah. That's what we mean when we say, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. And how does that happen? By faith. So, that's where we leave off. Here we go. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. How many of you love talking about the law? See Jacob. There are times where I wish all of us had been able to go to law school. I think there are so many benefits to law school. My kids are tired of me saying these things. <laughs> Points. Yeah, that was Sid. <laughs> She'll recover in a second, as will I. There are many reasons why I want that. But some of it is so that we can understand civics in general. We can understand critical thinking and just society. Not necessarily that all the law schools produce men and women who are committed to just societies, but that the conversation itself has such importance because it's therein that we understand what a will or a testament is. It's there that we discover and begin to understand how contracts work. What does it mean to bequeath? What does it mean to have a revocable trust or an irrevocable trust? The more you want to study money, the more those things matter. The more you want to study society, the more those things matter. It's sad to me that our high schools don't teach more of this. But Paul expects his hearers, the recipients of these letters, to know what he's talking about. So here, you're going to see Paul do what philosophers and theologians love to do, and it's to extrapolate from a greater thing into a lesser thing so that we can understand the greater thing, or at other times, it's reversed. We'll study the lesser thing, not only to understand the greater thing, but that the greater thing might set a pattern for the lesser thing. So there are plenty of times where you're arguing from lesser to greater or from greater to lesser. Well, you don't get much greater than Jesus Christ. So here we see Paul explaining the greater by pulling down and examining the lesser. So he's talking about divine examples and divine theory. So he's going to draw down in 15 to human practices, human laws. If we're to understand the nature of the promise given to Abraham, we must understand how a will and testament functions. So 
I'm going to butcher it, but here we go. A man-made covenant, this word covenant probably is, is more about a testament than it is a covenant. There's a lot of theological like precision required to understand this. But let's just say it works this way. At some point, you will die. Or Christ will return and that will be moot. But if Christ returns, we're not going to be worried about earthly treasure. Amen? But until then, we do have to deal with earthly treasure. So when you write a will, your lawyer who you're working with will ask you a myriad of questions. And you will be given unbelievable amounts of what-ifs. And you're going to have to think through in each scenario, what do you want to happen with your assets, with your money, with your possessions? And at some point, what you have said that you want to happen when you die will be set in stone. It will, in our laws, pass through probate, unless you avoid probate, which I highly advocate. Not for today. And it'll be done. It'll be settled. It's all done. And it won't be amendable. It won't be changeable. You won't be able to do anything because the goods and the services and the everything is divided. And it will be final. What Paul's saying here is that just like at some point these things become final... On earth, there's a point at which it's final in heaven. So, when Paul says here, just like a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Are you asleep yet? You might be. I'm half asleep and I'm speaking. At some point, it's ratified. At some point, it's concluded. And at that point, it's unchangeable. What we are seeing here is an example of Paul using testament language to express the permanence of how we pass on our goods. But one of the central things to understand about that is that a will... Or a will and testament is not a contract. It does not set terms that various parties are obligated to fulfill. Instead, it simply declares what one party intends to do. Does that make sense? So if you're going to enter into a contract negotiation... You're going to be like, all right, this is what you promised to do, and this is what I promised to do, and if we both do what we promised to do, then we get the benefits, mutually, that we've assigned. And if we breach that contract, then we suffer the penalties for that failed contract. What Paul's saying here is that a last will and testament doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way on earth, and it doesn't work that way in heaven. This human example, and I believe me, the commentaries are filled with, is Paul following a Roman use of the law, a Jewish use of the law, a Greek, which is most likely, use of the law? Because all of those systems have different legal stages. They have different legal procedures. But what they all have in common is that at some point, the will becomes final, unchangeable. Here's the technical word, irrevocable, meaning at some point, it can no longer be set aside, revoked, annulled, abrogated, changed. In other words, Paul wants every believer to know that once the divine will, testament, covenant was made, it was irrevocable. 
In other words, if you cannot adjust the terms of a human will, once it's passed through probate for us, how much less can the terms of a divine will be adjusted? That makes sense? So, what then is the purpose of a will? The purpose of a will is to establish beneficiaries. People who will receive the inheritance. They'll do it by proportions. You can say, I want 50% of my stuff to go to this kid and 50% to that kid. You can say, send 5% to this charity and 10% to that charity. Make checks payable to Buy Grace Community Church. (laughs) But when you create a will, let me say it differently. When Liz and I, a few years ago, wrote out our wills, one of the things that shocked me was how joyful I was in the process. I enjoyed thinking about, not death, but generosity. How could I give? To whom could I give? If Liz and I and the girls are on a plane and we all die in a horrible, terrible fire, we will be in the throne room of heaven, fear not. But what happens to our stuff? What happens to our house and our, you know, football cards and stuff? (laughs) They go to a beneficiary. A beneficiary is someone who receives an inheritance on the basis of a binding legal promise. It is worth remembering that a promise can't be earned. Hang on to that thought. A promise can't be earned. Now, a reward can be earned, but it has a clause attached, right? If you, then you. That makes sense? That's not the same as with a will and testament. With a will and testament, we're saying, do this because of what we say. Nobody enters into a negotiation with us. You would be wasting your time to try and negotiate with us for our stuff. We've already determined whom it should go to. So when we see this, Paul's trying to help us understand the nature of an irrevocable promise that cannot be earned, but will always be received. Now you might say to yourself, there are people who make lots of promises but they don't fulfill those promises. They break their promise. You might remember moments in your life where you had the cloud of disappointment or the fire of anger well up inside you because somebody didn't do what they promised to do. As a father, I tried desperately to not promise Anything that I did not have the assurance that I could deliver on. Sometimes consequence is a promise that you must deliver on. But a promise isn't earned. Rewards are earned. Paychecks are earned. Inheritances are given. They're given. That's why I was so joyful. It wasn't joyful to meditate on death. It was joyful to think about acting like God. Not being a God, but reflecting his generosity. That he can look at you and say, air, 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 air. In fact, I got a whole room full of airs. So what Paul's saying here is that the promise God makes to Abraham is irrevocable. The promise 
is irrevocable. Well, on what basis? It's based in the blood covenant ceremony that Abraham set up but did not fulfill. Spend time this week in Genesis 15 and you will see that to cut a covenant in that day was a bloody experience. You would cut these animals from tip to toe and separate them and create an aisle. This is why you walk an aisle at a wedding. We got to go to a wedding yesterday. And the groom, in his beautiful words spoken to his wife in that ceremony, actually articulated the joy he had in coming to that altar to die. That Christ would live. And that his promise to his beautiful bride was that he wanted to be held to the standard of Jesus when it came to love. The one who suffered unto death for the beneficiaries of his inheritance. He even called it, and I'm totally sealing this line forever now, the most beautiful funeral they'd ever attend. And a lot of people there thought he misspoke. They thought he just goofed it. He said funeral and he should have said wedding. I about jumped out of my chair at the robust theological truth coming from the mouth of the 20-year-old that befuddled a room full of adults because it was a beautiful funeral. They had come to die, that Christ would live and that a reborn two would turn into one. It's all based in Genesis 15. It's all based on this truth of blood covenant. The smoking fire pot passes through the pieces. Abraham does not walk the aisle. A pre-incarnate theophany of Jesus passes through the pieces. And essentially what is being said there is if I fail to do what I'm responsible to do, may I be as they are. Yeah. But it's Jesus who bears the penalty. It's Abraham who receives the benefits in blessing. That's the gospel, y'all. So when we see Paul dealing here with the idea of this lesser covenant being irrevocable, when we see it grow, it's in 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And you will see that formulation throughout Genesis. Specifically, you can get a reference in Genesis 12:7, in Genesis 13:15, in Genesis 24:7, etc. But those are places where you can see God specifically saying, "I promise to bless Abraham. Yeah, but Abraham is not alone in these promises. His offspring is also the beneficiary. Not a secondary beneficiary, but a primary one. That's essential for us to understand what he's saying. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And Paul's going to narrow in on the fact that offspring is a singular word. He does not say, and to offsprings. That would be silly. Referring to many. Instead, he's just referring to one. And to your offspring. And then here is the thunder of this verse. 
hear the clap of thunder in your heart that the offspring being talked about in Genesis is Jesus Christ. It is Christ who is the promised offspring. It is Christ who is the beneficiary. It is Christ to whom Abraham is unified in the promise. Now, let's be very careful. What's happening here is the use grammatically, I can't believe I say these words sometimes, but the grammar matters here. He's using a collective noun, offspring. When we say offspring, it obviously has a single form. Isaac was Abraham's offspring. He wasn't part of Abraham's offspring. We don't say it that way. And the Hebrew doesn't say it that way, and Paul doesn't teach it that way. What he's saying is that the use of offspring here has a singular form, but it can mean an individual, like Isaac, or it can mean a plurality of people. Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and and, 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 and. We do this in our own culture. I offer you the example of the word family. You belong to a singular family. But that family, which is one, has more than one in it to be used as family. If you're one person with no family, you are not a family. You belong to this family, but we can use the word in its singular form to express a multitude of people. Or we can talk about it in just its unique singular form. What Paul's drawing our attention to in verse 16 is that there is one one promised blessing, the union that Abraham has with the coming Christ. That's why it is by faith that he is blessed, saved, united to Christ. In other words, God gave the promise to Abraham. The promise itself was Christ. And that's where Abraham believed. Believed in the promise of Christ and that in the coming of Christ, we would be, he would be delivered. Listen to William Perkins say this. The Puritan says, the promises made to Abraham are first made to Christ. And then in Christ, to all the believers in him. Isn't that great? I'll give it again. The promises made to Abraham are first made to Christ, and then in Christ to all the believers in him. This is why Paul is trying to draw attention to this collective noun in its singular form, and that we would understand that that singular form represents generations, centuries, millennia, believers who are united to him. So the single individual here is Jesus Christ. The collection of individuals are all believers before Christ, during Christ, after the coming of Christ. In other words, Paul's narrowing in on the doctrine of our union with Christ. And this is why we can go back to verse 8 and we can see Paul say this, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What? Jesus hadn't come yet. There's no Roman cross. How is the gospel being preached to Abraham? 
It's being preached in the promise of the coming of Christ by whom all nations will be blessed and his people redeemed. All of that is embedded here. And that's why Paul's drawing our attention to this gospel beforehand. The beforehand gospel is Jesus as the promised blessing. Well, guess what? That's the same gospel we have afterhand. So if you're ever caught in a situation and you're like, I want to talk about my faith, but I don't know what to say. Say Jesus. Say he was promised and he came. Say he atoned for our sin. Say he was vindicated that Easter morning as the promise of God applied in time and space that had been promised long before the fall even occurred. So, here we go. Paul's saying the promise is Christ. The promise, the blessing given to Abraham ahead of time is Jesus Christ. And then he's going to go into what we call, and again, boring vocab, chronological primacy. Doesn't that sound sophisticated? It simply means it takes priority because it was first. Chronology, time, study of time, and primacy, meaning first or highest. Well, you guys love talking about chronological primacy, but I will tell you the Bible is filled with an assumption, cultural norm of chronological primacy. It's why Paul argues about right household relationships. Adam and Eve, Adam was formed first. It's not just a statement of time, it's also a statement of responsibility. So when we see here in 17, we're going to see Paul establishing this chronological primacy. Watch, 17, here we go. This is what I mean. The law, which came through Moses, 430 years later, does not annul. That's covenant language. That's will and testament language. It does not set aside. It does not change. It does not add an addendum to a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. I love, I love the saints throughout the ages. I don't know them all individually, but I love them. But one of the mistakes that can happen in the church can get passed on and spread widely. Like the health, wealth, prosperity movement happening in Africa right now, which we in America exported to our great shame and responsibility to change. It's one of the reasons why we partner with and support Rachel and Eric. Because they have classical Christian education centers where she instructs future worship leaders and works alongside the Bible study makers so that the gospel, the true gospel, the one of grace and freedom that we're talking about can be passed on and eradicate the false gospel of the HWP movement in Africa. So be generous. Yes, we have a budget. Yes, we need to meet it. But we also partner with gospel-proclaiming ministries to serve and reach them with the gospel. All right, so here's how this works out. Verse 17, the law came four centuries later. It cannot annul 
what came before it. In other words, the promise given to Abraham predates Moses and the giving of the law by four centuries. The law, in principle then, is secondary to the promise because the promise came first. My dispensational brothers and sisters make a grave error on this point because they see God adding addendum clause to addendum clause to addendum clause. Or some of them, less now than there was 100, 200 years ago, just annulling it, abrogating it, throwing it away and starting over again. God's like, oh, I tried this with Adam, it didn't work. So I'm gonna do this with Noah, still not working. What about we try this Abraham thing? Nope, that didn't work. What about Moses? Uh, We're gonna ride that for a little while. Not really, how about David, Jeremiah? Uh Uh-oh, 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 Jesus. By no means, the law cannot set aside the promise The law serves a different purpose that he's going to go into in a little bit, but we're not going to do it today. The law, in principle, is secondary to the promise because the promise came first. That's chronological primacy. In other words, the promise given to Abraham and the law given to Moses are not on equal terms. Do you need that again? The promise given to Abraham and the law given to Moses are not on equal terms. Four centuries indicate emphasis because the law cannot replace the promise. It is the promise that has priority. So the law is subordinate to the promise because the promise was given first. That's what he's saying here. You can't void the promise. The promise is the governing constitution imposed by God unilaterally, lived out with us and God bilaterally. In other words, it's about the promise. And if you do just a simple Google search on Bible verses that include, quote, the promise, close quote, you will spend glorious days, weeks, years of your life seeing how often the promise is what is celebrated among the Jews in the Old Testament, and how much the life, death, and resurrection of the promise, Christ, is celebrated throughout the rest of the Bible. It was promised before, and it is beloved after. It is beloved before. And understood more deeply after. Listen to him carry this thought forward. 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. My boy Riken going to drop it. Are you ready? Please be ready. Ready? If the law had been necessary for salvation, it would have come too late to do Abraham any good. Right? If the law had been necessary for salvation, it would have come too late to do Abraham any good. That's Dr. Riken dropping it hot. Because we need it warmed up in our hearts. Why are the Judaizers looking to the law for something they've already been given in the promise? 
Why are the Judaizers seeking to annul or addendum a clause into something that's already greater than the human mind could ever imagine? The blessings are more rich, more broad, more deep, more high, more, more, more. I sound like I'm Paul in Romans 8, I hope. What you have in Christ is greater than anything you perceive you lack. Your inheritance is not a bigger house. It's not more stuff here. Your inheritance is eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's union with Christ. And from that union, all that is Christ becomes yours. And on the cross, all that is ours to our shame and guilt becomes his. Which means y'all don't get to keep your shame. You don't get to keep your sorrow. It has an expiration date. You don't get to keep the consequence and penalties of your sin. This is essential for the church to grab onto. This is essential for the Christian to believe and remember, to speak and to hear. Abraham had been justified by faith long before the law of Moses was introduced. How is salvation by law when Moses is not? He is not the test case of the New Testament saving faith. Abe is. Father Abraham, the promise of Abraham is the coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, everywhere in Scripture, the Abrahamic blessing is Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, all good things are given, all good things received. What's the application? What's the amazing, beautiful, wonderful theological witness of this text? God deals with us according to his promises, not according to our works. Right standing with God rests solely on a promise that God cannot break. He can't break it. He already gave it. It's not a negotiation. It's not a contract. Although if it was, I would sign it instantly. If God wrote it, I'll sign it. Our standing before God, to those who are weary, to those who are exhausted and tired, to those who are fearful and sorrowful, to all whom you feel like a cloud has descended upon your head and wherever you go, that rain goes with you. Hear this. All you failures, all of us who are given to despair, all those who grieve, hear this. Your obedience to God and his law fluctuates. Yeah? God's backing of his promise knows no fluctuation. Our performance inconsistent at best, our standing before God does not fluctuate with the inconsistency of our daily obedience, our standing before God is Jesus Christ standing before the Father. So if you picture the Father frowning on Jesus, then you're allowed to picture God frowning on you. And that lasted about three hours of darkness. From now on.
what belongs to Christ is ours. Our standing before God is Jesus Christ standing before his Father. So whatever Jesus rightly deserves, it becomes ours. How? By faith. By faith, it was credited to Abraham. By faith, it is credited to me and to you. So because we are in Christ, union with Christ, we are heirs of his inheritance. Yeah, give me another amen. amen. Let's agree together. Amen? amen? What is Christ is yours as you are hidden away in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it may be technical, it may be boring. It may be new or old, but Father in heaven, thank you that it is true. That you are the gospel. You are the virtue we have been looking for. You are the beauty that our eyes are made to behold. You are the wonder of wonders whose mercy and love surpasses anything, everything that we could ever imagine. Thank you, O oh Lord, that you have not left us to ourselves. Thank you, O oh Lord, that you have not allowed us to add or subtract from your promises. Father, we thank you that your divine word is trustworthy. And may it bear much fruit in our minds, in our hearts, in our strength and resolve. May it overcome the very center of who we are and what we love. That you would define who we are and that you would be the consuming fire we love. And all God's people agree.